right. Um, let's see here. Oh. <laughs> Oh. These yours? Yeah. Did I switch with you somewhere? Yeah. Here. <laughs> All good, except I do need these notes at some point here. So. <laughs> I was thinking, I, I know I printed that, but it's all right. All right. So Psalm 100. Psalm 100. Go ahead and turn there if you're not already there. And uh, take 30 seconds to read through it if you haven't already. It's a short one, but it's uh, some profound truth here for us to think about. We'll start out if there's any figures of speech and so forth, as we typically do. Okay, so shout all the earth. Okay, what else? Okay, yeah, I mean, that's uh, the description of the manner we're supposed to come before him. Okay, good, or serve him. How about verse 3? Is there a kind of a word picture there? Yeah, okay. Okay. Yeah, which is a roundabout way of saying God's the creator, right? Okay, good. And then in uh, verse 4, Yeah, so there are probably literal gates and courts, but what is this probably referencing? Yeah, either Jerusalem or the temple. I'm thinking probably the temple because of the reference to courts, and there was outer court and inner court and so forth. So, um, And then when it says bless his name, what does that mean more or less? Oh, there we go. Okay. Yeah. Let me see. Okay. There we go. Yes. Yeah. So, uh, yes. Yeah, so, verse 4 is to, when we say bless his name, we're worshiping or honoring God himself, not just saying God's name be blessed and then, you know, kind of moving on. Um, which is. Uh, Kind of an interesting, um, kind of an interesting concept to bless God in the sense that we don't add anything to God, and yet we're commanded to reverence and honor Him as though our actions do. Mm, but it primarily, is the effect I think maybe it has on the people around us. What are some repeated thoughts that we see here? Okay. Yeah, joyfully, gladness, joyful, and one and two. See Thanksgiving also uh, in verse four. And then we see praise and give thanks also in verse four. Okay. Yeah, loving kindness and faithfulness are those parallel words there. Um Again, there's not a, a ton of items here to, to note, but I think the big theme is this, you know, the attitude with which we come before God. Uh, we'll come back to the structure in a moment. Uh, the type of psalm, what do we think that might be? Yeah. I think. Is it still an 
so the things that I looked at would see um, 94 to 99, I believe. Maybe it's 93 to 99. I'd have to go back and look. And then I think Psalm 47 as being sort of the kingship psalms. Um, could it be a song of thanksgiving? I think uh, if, we, if we think way back, which has been quite a while since we looked at the categories, there is thanksgiving here. I think the way that the sources I was looking at used song of thanksgiving was personal thanks to God for a specific way that he saved someone from danger or whatever. So David has a hymn of thanksgiving when he's saved from Absalom, like that kind of idea. Whereas this would be more generally praise, even though it uses the word thanksgiving, because he's talking about it all in general terms for everybody, not personally thanking God for something. So um, the way that that description was used, I think, was more like David thanks God for saving him, or the king praises God because God delivered him from his enemies, that kind of thing when we say a psalm of thanksgiving. And again, those categories are a little bit flexible, but I think that's the way that that was used, if I'm remembering correctly. Yeah, can ask God if we can enter into yeah the fact that we have a relationship with God is a profound thing. Um, let's come back to that when we get to truths about us in just a moment. What are some truths about God, first of all? Okay, God is a creator. There's another one there in verse 3. Okay. But verse 3, know that the Lord is God. So yes, he is a shepherd, but essentially there's this idea that the Lord is God, like the only God, the one God, the true God, that kind of idea, okay? Yeah, and yes, if we are his people and the sheep of his pasture, that means that he's the shepherd. And since he's made us, he's the creator, right? Okay. Um, verse, what's that, sorry? Okay, yeah, and we could either do that one here or we could do it under what our response is supposed to be uh, in just a moment. Yeah, good and faithful, verse 5. Okay, good. Uh, what, what are truths about us, our response, the way we're supposed to think about all these things with God? Okay. Yeah, there, sorry, go ahead. Praise and worship God, good. Um, there's this idea several times of, of approaching him. So verse 2, come before with singing. And verse 4, enter his gates with thanksgiving. So there's this approaching of God. Okay. Okay. Yeah, joyfully. Uh, the way that I wrote it is praise God joyfully through thanksgiving. Or with thanksgiving. What's that? And loudly. And loudly, okay. It does say shout, yes, so occasionally that's acceptable, right? Um, what's that? Okay, yeah, acknowledging God's presence in our lives, particularly, I think, verse 3, remembering God's relationship to us in the sense that he is the creator and we are the ones who are made, which, quite honestly, is something that's really easy, I think, for us to forget because... Mm, yeah, we're, we're pretty convinced that we are the focus of the universe because our lives pretty much revolve around what we ought, feel like we ought to be and do. 
And so to remember that God is the creator and I am not is something that we regularly need to come back to. Okay? Um, what about God's, God's kindness, this kindness and faithfulness? Uh, if it says it's everlasting into all generations, that would mean basically that it's eternal, right? So that's something that I think we need to, we need to remember. So. so if we tie these couple of ideas together then, just briefly, uh, the theme I wrote here is worship before your good creator with thankfulness. The first point I think is verses 1 through 3, serve God gladly because you belong to him. And it starts out uh, broadly, all should shout joyfully to God in verse 1. All the earth. That means that there is this implied command for every last creature who is made to worship the God who has made them, right? Uh, we see glimpses of this uh, in two places. And I'm just going to go to these couple of places in the book of Acts just because I've been looking at them more recently. One is in, I believe, Acts uh, 14. Paul says that God uh, set all these things up that you should turn from these vain things to a living God who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. In the generations gone by, he permitted all the nations to go their own ways. And yet he did not leave himself without witness in that he did good and gave you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. He says a fairly similar thing in Acts chapter 17 where he says, The God who made the world doesn't dwell in temples, not served by human hands. He gives to people life and breath and all things. And he made from one man every nation to live on all the face of the earth, having determined their appointed times and the boundaries of their habitation, that they would seek God, if perhaps they might grope for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. So, verse 29, we shouldn't think the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone, something we've made. Therefore, verse 30, Having overlooked times of ignorance, God is now declaring to men all people everywhere should repent because he's fixed a day in which he'll judge the world in righteousness through the man whom he's appointed. And then he's shown proof of this by raising him from the dead. And so there's this concept that Paul picks up, I think, from Old Testament settings like we have here in Psalm 100, that all people have a responsibility to worship God. Uh, I think that's highlighted in 2 Thessalonians 1 where it talks about God's judgment falling on those who do not obey the gospel, and we tend to think of the gospel as an optional kind of thing. Take it or leave it, heaven or hell, it's kind of up to you. But when it, Paul says God commands you to repent, and when 2 Thessalonians 1 says those who do not obey the gospel will be judged eternally, it sort of raises the stakes from this being an optional, if you get around to it, if you want to, if you feel like it, to a, everybody is supposed to do this, but some don't. And so uh, instead of it being those who really love God will, and, and they're like the A students and everybody else is doing okay, it's you ought to do this, and if you don't do this, it's pass-fail. Like there's no like grade curving the grade, right? And so um, when it says, shout joyfully to the Lord, all the earth, all people have a responsibility to praise God. Yes? Yes, absolutely. Apart from God's grace, we won't have repentance. Um, I'm just talking, just broadly speaking, just in terms of the, if we think about the responsibility God has placed on mankind, God made people not primarily for themselves, but to worship Him. 
Ecclesiastes said he set eternity in their hearts. Uh, Ephesians 2.10 says you're created for good works, that you would walk in them. Uh, Revelation makes it clear that there will be praise and honor brought to, before God in the end times for eternity. And so God has made us, yes, apart from his grace, we are not going to repent, and by his grace we can repent, but there is this, this responsibility that God has placed on, on the entire world to come before him. Not all do, not all will, but that doesn't make it any less real that all have this uh, responsibility. If, if, apart from God, you mean, or? Right, if, uh, yes. I'm not sure if I'm following what you're asking. Right, I suppose that raises the question of whether the revival or the repentance comes first. So, I would, I would tend to argue, but I would argue the same thing about salvation, new spiritual life and God's work precedes our response. In other words, for you to trust Jesus the first time, God has to be doing work in your heart for you to get to the point of expressing repentance and faith. And in the same way, when it comes to a concept like revival, for all the nations of the world to be ready to shout joyfully, God has to intervene in individual people's lives and bring them to a point of salvation. Uh, But I think the reality is God can command something that we cannot do and still be just in commanding it. And that's, I think, the point where sometimes people, and I'm not saying you, but sometimes people will have an issue. They'll say, well, God says you should do blank, but you can't do it, right? So God said, keep the law. How many people kept the law? Jesus. But other than that, nobody, right? So God commanded all these people to keep the law. They didn't keep it. Was God unjust in requiring them to do something he knew they could not do? Galatians 2 says, This is part of the training process that shows them their need of God because they couldn't do it on their own. The law functioned as a schoolmaster to bring us to Christ. So, um, yeah, so all people should shout joyfully before God. God has to do a work for this to be possible, but that doesn't make the command any less of an obligation on people because God requires it of them. Um, it, this ties in, I think, with what we were looking at on Sunday uh, in First Peter uh, with regard to the question of election, which is, does God choose people's salvation? Absolutely. It says it in Ephesians, says it in First Peter, says it a whole bunch of places. We can argue about the mechanism by which God does the choosing and the t- way in which it works out in time, but the fact of God choosing people is very clear in Scripture. But when we talk to people about the gospel, we say something like, God calls you to praise him. I don't believe in God. That doesn't mean the command doesn't exist. It's still there. God still wants you to do it. Uh, God calls you to repent. I don't want to repent. Well, you still are supposed to, whether you do it or not. I can't force you to. God has to help you to, but you still have to do it. Like, it's an obligation. It's not a whatever you feel like. And so then... It transitions from all the earth, I think, to what is going to be expressed specifically by God's people, although, again, all the earth, I think, is supposed to do this, which is to serve the Lord with gladness and come before him with joyful singing. So, serving with gladness is, I think, something that is a struggle for us to do with people that we see 
and in some ways understand a little bit better. Uh, I guess what I mean by this is if you know someone in your family, um, you observe that person and you see how that person behaves and you have some anticipation of why they do what they do, right? But when it comes to God, there's a lot of things that God does that are hard for us to fathom. And so I think there's perhaps sometimes a, ten a tendency to serve the Lord, but not always with gladness because, and usually what happens is, we're not convinced that God is good or we're not convinced that God knows what he's doing or we're not convinced that God is able to do what he said he would do, even though he's shown it time and again that he can't. And so because we doubt God's love or God's power or God's knowledge, sometimes we serve God but not with gladness. Or sometimes we just sort of get a skewed perspective on the Christian life and we say, well, because the Christian life often involves difficulty, that just means I'm going to be miserable, so I'm just going to serve God but kind of in a sour and defeated and discouraged kind of way. But when it says serve the Lord with gladness, it is on the basis of what he has done for us, what he is going to do for us, and what he's doing right now, such that we can genuinely serve him with gladness, even in, whether it's James or Peter or Paul or whoever, even in the midst of various trials, great difficulty, being in prison, we have opportunity to serve God with gladness. And so when we see opposition to Christianity in the world around us, when we realize that it's not easy to follow God, we can still serve him with gladness. We can come before him with joyful singing. And again, sometimes our singing is out of obligation, but this says to do it joyfully. It doesn't mean that everything is happy-go-lucky or just, you know, there are, there are modern songs that have a lot of parallel with like, like, um, uncontrolled dancing environments and there are quite frankly a lot of hymns that have the same sort of like happy-go-lucky feel to them so if you if this is your favorite song i apologize but one that comes to mind is the one that goes i was sinking deep in sin da -da 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 -da. like that probably communicated maybe something a little bit different culturally in their time but when i hear it i'm like I was sinking deep in sin, like that's something to be a little bit concerned about, not like, yay, we're you know, going on the ride at the carnival, right? That's the feel that I get when I hear that song, right? Um, or, uh, you know, there was, um, there was a song when I went to my friend's church, uh, some Australian person wrote it, and it was kind of a contemporary song, and it was like, jumping in the house of God, jump, 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 and I was like, okay. I don't think that's what this psalm is getting at, right? So the point is not that the music necessarily has to feel happy, but that we are singing joyfully to God. Paul and Silas sang joyfully to God hymns and songs of praise when they were in jail. They didn't have any instruments. They didn't probably have a hymn book. They just sang potentially some of the psalms or hymns based on those psalms to God in the context of what was a very difficult situation, and God was honored by it. So we can come before God with joyful singing, regardless of the circumstances, and even in the context of songs that we don't necessarily think of as happy, we can still have joyful singing. And the basis of shouting joyfully, serving with gladness, coming before with joyful singing is 
that we know the Lord himself is God. Now, this is actually a command, I believe, in Hebrew, if I remember correctly. Know that the Lord is God. So the psalmist is calling them to remember something. Remember that the Lord, personal name of God, is God. Yahweh is Elohim, right? It is he who made us, not we ourselves. So God is God. God made you. You belong to him, which is really important because we tend to reverse the order. God belongs to me. He's my God, right? I can reshape him in my image. I'm sort of the creator. And I can assert my authority over him. So he's not really the only one true God. Sometimes I am, right? And we would never come out and say that, but that is sometimes the way that we act. And so this verse corrects that. God is God. He made you. You serve him, not the other way around. That language of sheep of his pasture and being his people is something that is particularly applied to the people of Israel all throughout the Old Testament. I was even, as we were singing those first few songs, looking at John 10 and looking at the context of it because we tend to appropriate that immediately to ourselves as Gentiles. But Jesus doesn't start talking to the Gentiles until John 12, where he says, if I'm lifted up, I'll draw them into myself. You Greeks, you Jews, you Pharisees, like some of you, all of you, I'm going to draw to myself, right? All sorts of people. That's not till John 12. John 10, when he's talking about the Good Shepherd, he's talking about it in the context of the people of Israel. Now, does it have application to us? Definitely. But this is very much an Old Testament, God with Israel, faithfully watching over them kind of idea. We saw it fairly often in the book of Isaiah. So serve God gladly because you belong to him. Now, are there New Testament uh, proofs that we belong to God as the church? Yes. You have been bought with a price, therefore glorify God in your body and your soul, which are God's. Uh, Paul wrote that to the Corinthians. The Corinthians were not Jewish people, and yet there is this clear sense that they belong to God. Paul preached in those passages in Acts 12 and 17 that I mentioned to you that God made everybody, not just the Israelites. So is God the only true God for Gentiles? Yes. Is God the one who made Gentiles? Yes. Can Gentiles be God's people if they believe in him through Jesus? Absolutely. Can we, in that sense, be his sheep and his people? Yes. Uh, but here, this was directed toward the Israelites. So serve God gladly because you belong to him is the first idea. And the second idea is approach God thankfully because he is always good. This starts out by coming to his place of worship with thankfulness and worship. So coming to his place of worship with thankfulness and worship, verse 4, enter his gates with thanksgiving, his courts with praise, give thanks to him and bless his name. So the gates and the courts, there were various gates that went into the various courts. Uh, you would have this crowd of people that would come in and the Jewish women would come to this outer court and stop. The Jewish men would go a little bit further. They would stop. The priests would go a little bit further and they would stop and the high priest would go once a year, but only then. And so you had these successive layers of access to God. In that context, it was possible to come before God with thanksgiving, remembering what he had done, praising him for it, and uh, blessing his name, exalting him in the sight of all the people. Uh, it's interesting, uh, when the Pharisees go after the man who was born blind in John 9, they say, give glory to God. What do they mean by that? They're saying something parallel to bless God, right? Give glory to God, bless God, give other people a right opinion of God. Now, what they meant by it was by agreeing with what we're saying, which was not what he could do because it was false. But that's the sort of idea. Give glory to God, do things which honor God, 
raise God's reputation and sense of who he is in the minds of all the people around you. And that's what we're supposed to do when we come before him, with thanksgiving, with praise, and as we bless him. And the reason for this is because the Lord is good. Loving loyalty. Um, uh, this idea of loving loyalty and faithfulness are paired a bunch of times in the Bible, especially in the book of Psalms. And it's basically God made a covenant, God keeps his covenant, and God is never the one who breaks his word. So, can you be thankful for someone who is mostly a jerk to you, but sometimes does something nice? Yes. Uh, Jesus uses the illustration of this when he's talking to parents. He says, you, being evil, know how to give your children good gifts. Which of you, when his son comes and asks for him a fish, is going to be like, oh, just kidding, I gave you a viper, it's going to bite you and kill you, right? We don't do that, even though we're sinners, we don't even do that to our own people, right, our own family. Um, so if we, being sinners, do what is good toward them, um, how much greater is it that God does what is faithful and keeps his promise, even to people who, as Paul says to Timothy, even to those who sometimes even deny him, right? Peter denied Jesus. Uh, Demas ran away and uh, loved the world more than following after God and being a companion of Paul in the ministry. We don't know if he ever repented. A whole bunch of examples of people in the New Testament and the Old and even in modern times who are unfaithful and who do not express loyalty. There's never a question, there should never be a question in our mind that God expresses loyalty. And so we should thank him for it. So if we would say thank you to a sinner who buys us a birthday present or a Christmas present or helps us by mowing the lawn or brings a meal when we're sick or whatever, how much more to the God who never, ever fails to keep his promises, never, ever breaks his word, never, ever Stop seeking what is good for his people and for the world. We ought to come before him, thankfully, because he is always good. Now, there was a song that I was listening to the other day, and uh, it doesn't, it, the words didn't say God is good, but it was using this idea of God being worthy. And it said, when you're sitting by the hospital bed and that person that you love is dying, God is worthy then. When you lose your job, God is worthy then. When some other disaster comes into your life, humanly speaking, God is worthy then. The circumstances that we experience do not change the fact that God is good and deserves our thanks and praise and blessing because the verse very clearly says it. The Lord is good. Not the Lord is good except on Thursday when someone was mean to me and I got stuck in traffic. Not the Lord is good except on Wednesday when I found out I had this huge unexpected bill or uh, had a falling out with a friend or whatever. The Lord is good. That's it. The Lord is good because he does not change in his loving loyalty and in his faithfulness. So... We are to worship before our good creator 
with thankfulness, serving Him gladly because we belong to Him, approaching Him thankfully because He is always good.